0: The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today skills secretary Vince Cable says he wants a more progressive system of university funding. Philosopher Julian Bugini tells us why we should have sympathy for Raoul Moat.
2: People are always try to imagine them. Moral monsters are kind of a different breed from us.
1: We join British troops on Salisbury Plain as they prepare to join their comrades in Helmand. It's just a case of
3: saying to the boys, not everybody out there is evil. It's literally the Taliban, most of the people want
1: us and are on side. And how a teenage Beatles fan got access to her idols by turning up at their front door. First, our top story. In future, students who end up in well-paid jobs will pay far more for their degrees. In his first speech on universities, the Skills Secretary, Vince Cable, said the amount that graduates pay for their university education should depend on how much they earn. Now what I'm interested in doing is looking at the feasibility of changing the system of financing student tuition so that the repayment mechanism Uh, is variable graduate contributions tied to earnings Uh, and by looking at the periods of time over which contributions are made, by looking at the thresholds that trigger the contributions, the rate at which contributions are paid and other key variables, uh, it may be possible uh, to lever graduate contributions in a progressive way which is linked to ability to pay. Guardian's education correspondent, Jessica Shepard, explains how Vince Cable and the government are going to make the system more progressive.
4: Well, Vince Cable is um, suggesting that um, there's a graduate tax, and that basically means that you're taxed according to how much you earn. So if you're a city banker and you're on £65,000, you're going to pay a lot more for your university degree than, say, a teacher uh, on £23,000.
1: Why don't they just raise tuition fees?
4: By raising tuition fees, you would not distinguish between people who end up earning a lot more than others. Um, So this is seen to be a much fairer system.
1: Although no other country seems to have implemented a graduate tax, have they?
4: No, that's right and that's uh, one of the reasons why universities are not very keen on this idea Um, and it also means that universities would be without funding for quite a number of years before graduates started to pay this tax. For
1: how long a period would graduates have to pay back this money?
4: Well, the details haven't really been sorted out. The National Union of Students has developed a model of a graduate tax or graduate contribution, they say, Um, and under that one you'd pay for about 25 years so it's not that you'd be paying for the whole of your life.
1: Now me and to a much lesser extent Jessica you um, left university many years ago um, and you know would we have to pay this tax? We're we're graduates, we're we're working.
4: No no I don't think that's uh, under proposals, it would just be people who would be starting university um, not even next year but probably years after that.
1: How does this affect the review of student funding currently being carried out by Lord Brown?
4: Well, um, Vince Cable says that he, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, uh, are keen on the idea of a graduate tax. So you might say he's sort of trying to twist the arm of Lord Brown, who's the former chief executive of BP, um, and has been tasked with conducting an independent review into tuition fees and higher education. It does sort of put... Lord Brown in a bit of a corner. He he's really has to sort of take on board these ideas, I suppose.
1: And the government doesn't have to accept any of his proposals anyway?
4: No, that's right. I mean, they have given him given Lord Brown a, a job so uh, they seem to be sort of fairly cosy but uh, no, they don't have to accept any of his recommendations.
1: And do we know uh, what Vince Cable and the government think of Malcolm Grant's call uh, earlier this week? He's the provost of University College London. He wants the government to reduce the number of places at what he calls pilot high, selling cheap universities so protecting world-class institutions such as ucl
4: i think that um, vince cable would be secretly in favor of that he certainly has hinted very strongly today that he's going to cut the number of student places he won't say where those are going to be but he says that universities really need to rethink their expansion plans
1: jessica shepherd and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk education The former nightclub doorman, Raoul Mote, shot his former girlfriend, murdered her boyfriend and blinded a police officer before killing himself after a week-long police manhunt. Earlier, he'd spoken to a social worker and pleaded for help.
5: I would like to have um, a psychologist, have a word with me regularly on a regular basis to see if there's somewhere underlying like, where, you know, a problem that I haven't seen. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to say I don't do anything wrong, but I would like a professional, you know, not, not a DIY thing, you know, a professional thing. For someone to come along and say, look, there's area for improvement here. This is a problem.
1: Well, that recording from ITV News was made by Moat himself. Well, five days later, there are flowers at the spot where he died in Rothbury, Northumberland. And there are thousands of tributes, many of them anti-women and anti-police, on a Facebook page. This is what David Cameron said about it at Prime Minister's Questions. As far as I can see, it is absolutely clear that Raoul Moat was a callous murderer. Full stop, end of story, and I cannot understand any wave, however small, of public sympathy for this man. There should be sympathy for his victims, and for the havoc he wreaked in that community, there should be no sympathy for him. But philosopher Julian Bugini says we should have some sympathy for Raoul Moat.
2: You know, a lot of people say we shouldn't because they phrase it in terms of we either sort of have sympathy for him or his victims. Now, of course, we can have sympathy for both. We can have much more sympathy for his victims than for him. But there seems to be no reason why we shouldn't have some... Sympathy for him, because we know from psychologists and psychiatrists that in almost every case where someone does an appalling thing like this, the life history of the person's dreadful. You know, they've had a terrible life, etc., etc. And you know, and it just seems that the reason why we can't allow at least to have some sympathy for them, the only thing that seems to stop people allowing that is the feeling that somehow you know that means we've got to take away sympathy from other people, and it's just not true.
1: I mean, I can understand people having pity for someone like Raoul Moat, but uh, sympathy is going a bit far, isn't it?
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's difficult. We People always try to imagine that moral monsters are kind of a different breed from us. And I suppose sympathy uh, is about trying to sort of imagine that um, ourselves or perhaps people we know could themselves be in that situation. It's an uncomfortable fact. Again, if you look at the serious sort of psychologists who do research on people who do evil things, what they find is that there are a few people who are just completely, you know, psychopathic, whatever it might be. But a lot of people are, you know, there's nothing different about them fundamentally. A combination of circumstances and so forth have pushed them over. And I think it's very complacent of us to always imagine when we see people like that, that oh, they're just completely different. It's a different breed. We, we, we could They have no connection with us at all, different species.
1: So you, you wouldn't agree with David Cameron, who, who said that Moat was a callous murderer, full stop, end of story.
2: He was a callous murderer, but that's not full stop, end of story. And I think that's the whole problem, the full stop, end of story bit. Again, you know, in having sympathy, it doesn't take away the fact that he was a callous murderer. It doesn't take away his responsibility. It doesn't mean he shouldn't have done it. It doesn't mean that his victims deserve a hell of a lot more sympathy than he does. You know, but the fact of the matter is, all those things can be true. The point is, why can't we also just accept the reality here that he was almost, almost certainly, I don't know the facts about the situation, he himself almost certainly was someone who who's suffered a certain deal himself and had, you know, misfortune and so forth. It in no way excuses him. It in no way makes him less than the callous murderer.
1: Julian Pacini. My name's John Dennis, you're listening to Guardian Daily. The commander of British forces in Helmand, Brigadier Richard Felton, insists the murder of three British troops by a rogue Afghan soldier won't affect their mission. The Guardian's Stephen Morris met members of 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment, part of 16 Air Assault Brigade, on their final training exercise on Salisbury Plain before leaving for central Helmand.
5: Ranger Gareth McAlevey from, from One Royal Irish from County Down, North Down.
3: Do you, do you watch the news? Do you look at the newspapers, all the stuff that's been going on the last few days? What What do you make of all that?
5: Just try not to think about it, you know. Yeah, you do read it and think about it for a wee bit, but if you thought about it too much, you wouldn't go, you know what I mean? But it's not as bad. I don't think that's what the press make it out to be most of the time, you know what I mean?
3: What about your family? What do they think?
5: Uh, They're scared, like, but we brought he's the nice me like back home. He's been away on a few tours. So they're sort of used to it by now, like, you know. Everyone going away.
3: Is it what you've always wanted to do?
5: Yeah. Oh I from his child, like, always wanted to join the army. Uh, went left school and decided to get myself a trade first. Sort of something to fall back on. Got my trade and then I came here. What trade have you got? Bricklayer. Blue trade like. But I'd rather this. More fun. <laughs>
3: And what do you think of the mission? What's the UK trying to achieve as far as you, you're concerned?
5: More or less go out and help the people of Afghanistan, like, you know, get rid of the Taliban insurgents, for you because know, they're only ruining their lives for them as well, you know what I mean? So we're going to help them get their country back up, get their economy going again.
3: When you see this incident just the last few days where a member of the Afghan army has, has killed some of, some of the British troops, what, what do you think of that?
5: Well, you know... Always keep your wits about, don't let your coward down. But saying that there's a lot of Afghanis that are good, like you know. We're working with them as well, we're teaching them, they're teaching us too. Just get the odd slip up and down again. Just get on with.
3: So Lance Corporal Robin McDowell and First Battalion the Royal Irish Regiment, you join the army for the job, you know, this is the job, you know. I get out there, and to be fair, the last time in Afghanistan, I enjoyed it. I liked working in the Afghan army. You know, got to see different cultures. I took part in Ramadan with them for a week. Um, just, you know, mingled in with them, and you know, became good friends with them. And they worked better for us for that. Instead of you know, just getting up there and thinking, "Oh, they're Afghan army; they, you know, they're going to be rubbish and all that." You need to get amongst them, work with them, and they work for you. What do you think when you hear the news over the last few days? We've had lots of fatalities, and then this terrible one with the the Afghan national yeah. Afghan soldier. um it just sort of sort of brings it home to you, you. know, a lot of boys are used to their Call of Duty. You know, getting shot on a computer game just hit the continue button away you go. You sort of need to remind them every now. And then that this is it. And this, you know, you've got to start switching on and you know doing your drills properly. It's just a case of saying to the boys, Look, not everybody out there is evil. It's literally the Taliban. We're here. Most of the people want us and uh, are on side. As many times I went out there like last time as the medic, as I said, uh, on patrol would see some people sort something wrong. I patch them up. Uh, or I'd give them some medication, and in turn they'd help us out, you know, they'd come and let us know stuff. I had a baby that had been burnt by uh, boiling water, scalded looked after it for about three weeks, and it was fine, and from there you know, they would tell us anything they knew or could have heard of. <coughs> we, uh, so, you know, just getting amongst people, helping them, shoot sure that we're there to help them, not to ruin their way of life, and then they sort of come on side
1: and help you out. Well, good luck. Cheers. Stephen Morris reporting. A collection of Beatles memorabilia is expected to fetch thousands of pounds at auction next month. Included in the sale are some previously unseen photographs taken by a teenage fan who waited outside the homes of the Fab Four in the mid-1960s. Sue Baker was 15 when she found out Paul McCartney's home address.
0: I was quite a resourceful fan, I suppose, and I read an article, I think it was in one of the Beatles monthlies, saying that Paul had got this nice posh house in london and it was in st john's wood and it was Georgian. and it had a black electric gate and it had a very old-fashioned lamp in the garden uh street light so uh, a friend and i went up to have a look and we walked up all around st john's wood for a couple of hours couldn't find it and uh, i saw a child playing in the street and said to him you know do you know where paul mccartney lives and he said oh yes yeah. and i said well would you show me for half a crown and he said yes yeah, so he took us round there and we saw it and we were, oh my goodness, Paul, can't he live here and how wonderful? And to be a bit cheeky, I rang the bell and he came down and opened the gate and spoke to us. And we were just so amazed that he would come out and talk, talk to us. And of course, that was the start of it. <laughs> From then on, we started going up. We tried to go at most weeks to see him.
1: And, and was he pleased to see you? <laughs>
0: Well, he came out, you know, we we really didn't expect that. We thought someone would say go away or, or a minder or something would come out. So I think, well, the fact that he came out to chat to us and seemed quite happy to see people. And it, I mean, it wasn't just us because gradually there were lots of people actually in London because it was around the corner from Abbey Road. Uh, recording studio so obviously Paul I think took the brunt of the fans
1: and as you say Paul sort of bore the brunt of the attention from the fans because he was the only one that lived in London the other three lived in Surrey do you think that's why he gave you the addresses of George John and Ringo
0: I'm not really sure why but he just said you know do you visit the others like this and we said no because we don't know where they live you know I've got their addresses and he said, would you like them? And we <laughs> said, oh, yes, please. And I just grabbed an envelope out of my bag that, and wrote the addresses he gave me on the back of it. And, of course, you know, we then started visiting the others. But there, there were very few people that we ever saw that also visited the others. So maybe he was just fed up with us, I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, but, how, did the, uh,
1: how did the other three Beatles react when you turned up at their houses?
0: Well, again, I mean, we, they had gates, but they were never shut and of course being a bit cheeky we you know we walked up the drive and and rang the front door i mean this is the front door not just the gate and out they came and said hello and we said oh hello and how are you and i wonder if you could possibly you know give me an autograph and sorry to trouble you and and they were great that's the thing they were very warm and chatty and not at all aloof or egotistical that you would expect a big star to be. And it wasn't just chatting about them, because we would obviously say, you know, we liked your last record and what you're doing now and when you're going on tour and things. But then after a while, they would say, and how are you? You know, how did you get on at school and did you get that job? And we were just amazed that they would even remember us but the fact that they were as I say very warm and chatty and such genuine people was just so heartwarming really
1: and why are you selling your collection now Sue?
0: well it's been in the loft for oh, 44 years it's been travelling around with me and uh Every time we kind of go up there and, you know, as the children left home, you know, they'd go and take their stuff and it would be moved to one side, then another side. And I always used to say, oh, that was my running away money. Uh, And one day I'd sell it for my running away money. A colleague at work said that this auctioneer's cameos were quite specialist at that kind of thing. And I, I thought, well, I'll take it down and see what they think. And they seemed genuinely quite excited by the whole thing and the actual photograph album i only took down to show how i got the signatures because i know they need to be authenticated didn't for one minute think they would be interested in my old photographs and in fact he said that was really the heart of the collection because it validated it, but it also brought a human story that was a, a different angle and people would be interested in it.
1: Sue Baker and her collection will be sold at Cameo Auctioneers in Reading on August the 3rd. Guardian Daily was produced today by Ian Chambers. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.
0: For more great downloads go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio